Is there a particular kind of narrative about American religious life that you feel like doesn't do justice to what's actually true? My favorite incoherent poll question of all time is one from a Gallup poll that gets asked consistently, which is, do you believe that religion is old-fashioned and out of date? Talk about something that is full of Rorschach and plot tests in terms of interpreting all of the different parts of that. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, why religion is so hard to capture in stats. That may not be that surprising. Religion is personal, it's nuanced, it evolves, all of the things that shield it from easy quantification. But that's what makes polling about religion so seductive. The promise of being able to run the numbers and spit out a definitive stat, X number of Muslims believe this, Y number of Americans pray every day, that's what makes it really compelling. So we'll try to get behind those data points and see what lessons polling about religion has for polling about other things that aren't so cut and dry, which is basically everything else in the world. That's in a minute, but first, a number that caught our eye this week, it's the significant digit. Excuse me. You happen to have a happen to have a sec to talk? About what? Um, can I tell you a number? What? Can I tell you a number? Okay. The number is four point eight million, which is the number of books that Dr. Seuss sold in uh, last year, actually in two thousand thirteen. That seems small. Small. That seems like a. Small it is number. by far the number one. Really? Uh, yeah. You want to take a guess, like maybe who's in second place? Uh, Harry Potter. There you go. How many Dr. Seuss books have you read? Oh, God. Let's see. I started reading them in kindergarten, and I'm 58. So, let's see. Probably, I don't know, 12? 12. You're the guy who's bringing up the numbers. Uh, I, well, yeah, but I had kids, so I bought a lot of books for my kids. What were their favorites? Hop on Pop, uh, Cat in the Hat, uh, Green Eggs and Ham, of course. Did you get sick of them? Never. That on the street was Rob Marr, and this in the studio is Chad Matlin to talk a little bit more about the millions and millions of books that Dr. Seuss sells each year. Chad, of course, host of our sports podcast, Hot Takedown, and editor of this podcast. Who will edit the editor? I know. <laughs> You're going to edit me in real time right now. Um, is this where I admit that I actually – Dr. Seuss was not that big of a part of my growing up? Like I think I can name – Green Eggs and Ham. You didn't watch the Lorax the movie on go. repeat? Like no, in, on no. A it was just never that big for me. But I am the outlier that proves the statistical story because 4.8 million books sold by Seuss in 2013, and that's up from 3.2 million in 2010. So are there any other numbers that kind of help tell the story of this guy's persistent popularity? Yeah, and there's, there was a piece at Priceonomics.com about Dr. Seuss's ongoing dominance of the children's book sales uh, charts. And what what really captivated me was the theorizing about why he sold as, as many books as he has. And one of the theories that Priceonomics puts forward is just how simple his stories are and that there's a certain type of storytelling that he, that, that he did that got into children's brains and also their parents' brains maybe that allowed it to be such a, such a mainstream hit. Jody, if I told you that Green Eggs and Ham only had 50 words in it. What do you think those 50 words are? Can you name all 50? The. Good. 
Yes. Okay, 49 to go. <laughs> <laughs> it I, only has 50 words. It only has 50 words. I, not them. A, like, in, do. I won't yeah. li- read the whole Rearranged. list. But, you know, these, these are words that any kid who's developing language for the first time can get. I think in, in Cat in the Hat, it was um, – there's a challenge – uh, to use the 348 words that first graders should know, and Sus used 236 of them. So this was a conscious decision to really simplify down the language. Maybe that's a th- that that's something to that that has worked with parents through all generations. Is that you know when you're giving this kid a book that the themes in it are going to be unobjectionable. How much objectionable stuff can you do with 236 words? Or, well, it depends or which 236 words you choose, but yes. Right, exactly, yeah. So they're really simple. They wend their way into a child and a parent's brain. The, the other thing that Priceonomics pointed out, which I thought was really interesting, was that he has books for basically every age. Right, and this is based on Barnes & Noble data, and yeah. for ages 0 to 2, he has 8 books on the bestseller list for 3 to 5, 15 books for 6 to 8, 12 books. This is a guy who is from not cradle to grave, cradle to puberty, taking kids through. <laughs> Vertical integration. <Right. laughs> but that means that you're a repeat buyer. If you are a Dr. Seuss fan, you're buying not just one of his products in your childhood. You're buying two or three. Alternatively, it, it could mean that you are you could be a Dr. Seuss late bloomer, right? That, that you know, if you haven't gotten Dr. Seuss books by the time you're six, you're still going to get them. There's basically no escaping it. Or Dr. like Seuss. me, if you haven't read Dr. Seuss books and you made it to your 30s, now I can go back. I know what to get you for your work anniversary present, okay. Jody. Chad Matlin, thank you very much. Thanks, Jody. And now two of my favorite writers about religion, Emma Green of The Atlantic and Leah Labresco of 538, both in Washington, D.C., on how pollsters try to capture religious belief through surveys and why they so often fall short. But this isn't just a modern polling problem. Emma wrote a piece recently in which she mentioned one of the earliest surveys about religion in America conducted by a Presbyterian minister, Charles Stelzel, in 1926. It was one of the first attempts to get a handle on how Americans wrestle with questions of faith and morality and sin. And if you look at that survey's results compared to surveys you see conducted today, there are some pretty close echoes. Let's have Emma pick up the story here and get us into the interview. Here she is. So nearly a century ago, 91% of the people who took Stelzel's survey reported that they believe in God. And just a couple of years ago, roughly 92% of people said the same thing in a Pew report. This obviously doesn't mean that it is the same here in the United States in terms of level of belief in God as it was in 1926. But it does point to the fact that methodology has an outsized influence on what we think about what people believe. And moreover, that it's very, very complicated to accurately probe something so complicated as whether or not people believe in God. So, Leah, jump in here. I mean, what did you think when you heard about this 1926 poll What's it say about the way we try and quantify religion? Well, I think it speaks to how urgently people feel about answering these questions, both for themselves individually and that sense of, am I normal? Can polling tell me who I am in relation to others? So, you know, we see that impulse going back a long way. There's also a hint there of the sort of existential murkiness that comes with any kind of religious question. So any religious question is about 
relating to the universe and understanding what happens when you die, those kinds of very, very light and cheery topics. And so polling helps to make those things concrete. But I think there's another aspect of this which is very important. And a Princeton professor named Robert Wuthnow wrote about this in his recent book, Inventing American Religion. He talked specifically about the influence of politics on religion polling in the United States, particularly around the time that Jimmy Carter uh, was running for president. There was this surge in curiosity about who particularly white evangelical Protestants were, because suddenly there was this guy coming from Georgia, and nobody really knew what it meant to be a born-again Christian. So from that period forward, roughly four decades ago, there was a big boon in the polling industry asking people about both their beliefs in God, how much they attend church, whether or not they pray every day, and also whether they experience, they experience things like being born again. But even though politics, uh, you know, sort of there's this urge in politics to nail down all of these kinds of qualifiers, as Withnow writes in his book, it's actually very, very difficult to pin down something even so simple as the definition of what it means to be born again. So at the same time as there's been a rise in trying to nail down this potential voting block, it's also created a murkiness in the public sphere about what it actually means to be a religious person. Yeah, and Emma, I find it really interesting that you're bringing up the politics connection because one place I always go thinking about religion polling is actually kind of the Kinsey Institute and the diving into data of sexuality where it's this topic people don't always broach. So they're so dependent on pollsters and then on the way that researchers and pollsters frame their questions to understand what else is going on kind of behind the closed doors of people's bedrooms, of people's souls, of confessionals. Where does this urge to poll about religion come from? And is it similar to the urge to poll about any other part of our life? Well, you know, I think it's partly that religion is something that we don't always spend a lot of time discussing with each other. Um, A lot of it's kind of one to many. You'll hear about it in the pulpit, but you don't necessarily turn to your pew mate and keep talking. So... If you have doubts, you might have a sense of, am I alone? And you want to find out through polling. Or even if there's something that strikes you as particularly beautiful or important, it still may not feel natural in a lot of parishes or communities to be speaking to other people, especially nowadays when people move so much in and out of parishes, um, lots of moving in general, less tied to a particular community. How do you know what your fellow co-religionists believe and how their religion impacts their life, especially if you're not having deep connections and conversations? That actually goes right back to, I think, what is the the heart of what's most interesting to me about what both of you are exploring, which is this notion that polling has, you know, at, at best uh, replaced and then at worst maybe even stifled uh, the conversation about religion that should be happening in a more private sphere. But Leah, how is how is that possible? That you know, you would think that if there's anywhere in America where honest conversations and open conversations are happening, it's within religious communities. Well, so it can be hard, depending on how people's congregations are set up. If you come in for church and you leave after church and that's your exposure, you don't have that many opportunities to build up those conversations. Um, My parish is lucky. We have an adult Sunday school led by Dominican friars that kind of lets people get deeper into questions and start to have conversations with each other. One thing I really like in general is what Rod Dreyer calls the Benedict Option, which is kind of the goal to build a thicker Christian community. You know, and one thing I do with that in my own life is just hosting monthly dinners at my house for other Christians I know that are casual conversation, lots of eating, weird arguments about film. But all those casual weak ties give you the 
space to have kind of the deeper, more difficult conversations that go further and are more personal than what you're going to tell to a pollster and are part of a sustained relationship, which, you know, not even we as religion pollster nerds have with our religion pollsters. It takes a friend to be able to do that. And there's this weird, like, virality, in a way, to uh, religious polling. Like, I'm someone who doesn't live uh, necessarily religious life. I'm a lapsed Quaker, if you can believe it. But I'm fascinated by these polls. And I think especially the Pew polling around religion seems to, like, have this life in the Twitter age where people seem to be really fascinated by this stuff. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't think this is a new thing, but... I do think in the media in particular, there is a temptation to want to concretize mm-hmm. and to make sort of certain statements. So in the media today, there's a fascination with being able to explain and assert and sort of argue in an authoritative way. When you're talking about something like religion, which is inherently based on enormous complexity and personal experience and interpretation, this becomes really messy. And trying to apply polling data to some of these open questions about what it means to believe in God or what you believe about life after death, uh, I, I mean, I think there's more room for error, perhaps, in this area than many others, just because those questions are so dense and deep and personal. Um, there's also an easiness to accessing information that comes packaged in the form of polling data. So I don't want this to become just about Pew as sort of the the evil uh, sort of enemy set up um, as a as straw man enemy in this question, because I think Pew actually does really, really excellent work. And the people who work there are incredibly intelligent about the way that they think about these issues and alive to the fact that these questions are complex. But on the other side of it, uh, you know, there is a media savviness to the way that polling firms and research organizations like Pew package their information. And on the side of reporters, it can be very, very easy just to take a stat and unquestionably write it up and talk about, you know, 98% of Americans believe XYZ or XYZ percent of Americans think religion and science are incompatible without actually interrogating the first principle premises of those questions. I think what we see is kind of a streetlight effect where, you know, that's the story of the drunk who loses his car keys and keeps looking under the streetlight because it's the only thought he has light to see by at all, even if it doesn't happen to be where the keys are. You know, Pew does some really quality religion polling, um, but because people just lean on them so heavily, it really means they underreport any aspects of the religious experience in America that can't be easily polled and that they kind of stretch too far on a question where a poll might be, you know, the opening topic of a question, but really isn't sufficient. Right. And here I'm thinking, polling people about what they think is a sin. Mm. That's really not the same thing as who are you planning to vote for if the election were held today? Absolutely. And that's the question where whenever I see it, you know, I'm just wishing for better calibration because I can't tell whether when people say no, what they think I the pollster means by sin. Do they mean like the conventional thing they mean in my tradition, a Catholic tradition of falling short of what you're made for? Because then, you know, thinking snippy thoughts about someone is a sin. Um, and you probably should be writing almost everything there of the things they're putting forward. Do they mean mortal sin? You know, are they looking only for you might go to hell for doing this? And I can't tell when I read these polling results how to interpret them because I suspect so many different people 
are bringing so many different definitions of sin to the table that it doesn't help me to know 61% of Americans think blank is a sin when I have no idea what weight they're bringing to that word. Okay, so let's take as a given that you've made a very compelling case, both of you have, for the fact that this is a, a, a complicated issue and it's one that has done better justice through uh, storytelling and interviews and understanding nuance and so forth. So it makes me wonder, like, is there what's the point of polling about religion anyway? Is there any role for stats when it comes to trying to describe America's religious life? Well, I think one way to look at polling on religion um, is that it gives us a snapshot of where people are now. It can be interesting for longitudinal data, what's shifting. It's easiest on things that are behaviors. So do you pray every day? You know, do you go to church each week? Um, but if there's such a range of this, of definitions of what those things are, right, even the word pray, I mean, you mentioned the word sin. Do we get at anything? Yeah. And, and just to bring that up, I mean, I think you're totally right that behaviors are easier to measure, but just complicating that a little bit, one of the things that Withnell points out in his book is the fact that this question of church attendance actually has a whitewashing effect to it. Uh, because if you just look on sort of the facial aspect of, of church attendance, it can seem that white and black patterns of church attendance are fairly similar. But when you actually ask the next question, which is how many hours did you spend in church? How much time did you spend at church doing other activities like making soup for someone who is sick, uh, praying in different ways, doing Bible study? It actually looked very, very different uh, in terms of the way that different racial groups observed and worshipped. So that just goes to, to say that even some of the most simple questions or seemingly straightforward questions can have uh, unintended bias built into them. Yeah, the problem of representation is huge when people are writing these surveys or doing these reporting, because there's so much variation in religious practice that unless you actually get into the ethnography of it and understand how these groups vary, you're going to wind up with polling questions kind of targeted at median religious people or the religious people you know and leave out a lot of different practices and experiences. But you kind of need that knee-deep knowledge of these different religions to be able to ask questions or be able to explain when you're doing it. Of course, this part really isn't relevant to Catholic and Orthodox, you know, but it's quite relevant to, you know, some strains of evangelicalism. But then to be embedded in those communities, to learn what people mean when they say, you know, do you think God speaks to you when you pray? Um, and to really understand it from within their own tradition. You know, polling can be the start of that to tell you where to go. But then you have to actually meet the people, talk to them, learn about the tradition. Because a lot of times otherwise in religion, it's almost as though you're conducting an interview in a foreign language where you kind of drop in phrases that would be misunderstood by the person you're interviewing. Or they say things that you misinterpret on the way back. Just to go back to your original question, should we just ditch the whole enterprise? I don't think that's actually true. It is uh, fun and something that I believe in deeply uh, to sort of critique and poke at the way that uh, polling, but also social science writ large, can make missteps on religion. But I, I do think that it, to dismiss entirely the role of social science and, and polling data in trying to understand at least the first layer of what it means to be a religious person in the United States is a mistake. 
I want to expand this a little bit, and I wonder if you see echoes of this problem or these challenges in other kinds of polling as well. I mean, as you're describing this, I, I can't help but think of political polling and how a lot of times, you know, the categories that we bring to the questions in political polling or even the categories that we bring to thinking of the parties that we have in this country really don't capture the fact that people are a collection of sometimes seemingly contradictory characteristics. And I mean, even if you think of someone like Donald Trump and, you know, you think of him as like holding all these perplexing, differing opinions, but clearly it's landing with someone. And it's just a nice reminder that people don't think of themselves as a checkbox of categories. They think of themselves as the collection of their experiences. And that seems totally natural because that's who they are. Yeah. I mean, I just want to affirm and give a plus one to that read on the nature of humanity, (laughs) which is that human beings are fundamentally odd, incoherent creatures who don't fall into any discernible sort of narratives or patterns very easily, even though we in the media do our best to try to make it happen. Uh, Just to uh, riff off of your example of Donald Trump and polling, one stat that has been tossed around constantly, a little bit less so in recent weeks, is the love of white evangelicals uh, for Donald Trump. And you know, everybody was sort of scratching their head. I, I probably read a dozen different think pieces trying to unpack this and give the authoritative answer of why it was that white evangelicals love Donald Trump, even though this is a man who's been married multiple times. He's into gambling. He doesn't really have any particular religiosity to him. I mean, it's inexplicable pretty much why they would find a compatibility there. And I I think basically to me, this is a black box question. It can be untangled a little bit in understanding worship patterns. It can be untangled a little bit in trying to go back to, again, that understanding of people as uh, people who vote for politicians for reasons that aren't really predictable based on sort of policy choices or preferences. But basically, it's a black box. Uh, And I, I think that understanding the limitations of that polling material and not also writing it so hard for uh, sort of final knowledge is really important. I will say that a big difference between political polling and religion polling is that while people do read stories about religion, people read stories about religion, by the way, just so you know. Um, but while while people do read these stories and care, uh, religion polling and sort of tracking of religious belief in the United States has nothing on the industry that's dedicated to tracking people's political beliefs and their potential voting uh, patterns. I, I mean, you just see this with the polls coming out every week. It's March after March after March after every debate. And so I think that steady drumbeat effect can actually actually be a little bit more pernicious in terms of amplifying some of these black box polling result findings in the political sphere in a way that it maybe stays a little bit more niche in the religion. But this is a chance to go back actually to a little bit of what Leah, you were talking about earlier, which is this sort of feedback effect that because religious polling is maybe a little uh, rarer, but also because it's so seductive because it puts a hard number on something that is that we all know is messy and nuanced that polls have this outsized effect and then they influence the way that people answer polls in the future. And Emma, you pointed out this particular kind of question that you see over and over, which is a question like, do you think religion is gaining a bigger or smaller influence in American life? Which isn't really a question about religion, but it's like a question about your sense of religion. It's very meta, but it has this feedback effect. Yeah, I think one of the things that happens with this feedback effect, particular with politics, where so much keeps coming around the loop, um, is that this can be the primary way people are, you know, gaining their opinions. 
I mean, realistically, most Americans don't have opinions on the TPP trade deal. Uh, you know, the text has only come out. There's been no time to come up with anything. They're not crazy if they don't have opinions. What they're going to go based on is what people who they kind of trust say. And so the more that you just have a round of polling again of, well, mostly Republicans are against this. Well, I don't know much about it, but I am a Republican, so I suppose I'm against this. The more you kind of calcify these not actually very clean distinctions based on party, because people hear first how their group reacts before they have a sense or, or moment to react themselves. Um, and that's why when you kind of dive into each group, each, each political party or even into liberal, conservative, libertarian, you know, there's a lot of intra-group variation. But, you know, as long as you keep hearing what your group says, you don't have time to come to your own decisions. It's harder to elicit that. So is there a particular kind of narrative about American religious life that emerges from this feedback effect that you feel like doesn't do justice to what's actually true? So we could, between the two of us, probably tick off a list of a couple dozen of our least favorite narratives about religion in public life. Oh, man, I've already picked mine. <laughs> You're only sticking to one. I'm impressed. Uh, so I think there are a lot that uh, get reified and calcified by this um, sort of funhouse mirror question, the question that you pointed out, which is, what do you believe about the rise or decline of religion in the United States? Um, and there are variations of this that are asked all over the place. My favorite incoherent poll question of all time is one from a Gallup poll that gets asked consistently, which is, do you believe that religion is old-fashioned and out of date? <laughs> Talk about something that is full of Rorschach inkblot tests in terms of interpreting all of the different parts of that. Um, but in any case, uh, to me, one of the most relevant, uh, especially in terms of how it rebounds in the political sphere, uh, questions about sort of religious perception is about the decline of religiosity in American public life, so the creep of secularization. And I think uh, this myth comes from a lot of different parties. So on the one hand, you have triumphant secularists, triumphalist atheists, uh, people who sort of believe in these patent narratives about science triumphing over religion in the public sphere. But on the other hand, you also had, for example, uh, fearful conservative Christians who believe for a number of reasons that, you know, none of these reasons are sort of fabricated, but believe for a number of reasons that uh, religiosity is, is waning in the United States and they're you know, repeatedly going to be an embattled minority for whom there's really no space in public life. I think it's that we put a lot of our focus on religion polling on religion in public life, which is not the major sphere in which religion is lived. Yeah. You know, how does your religion influence your opinion on this law is not the heart of being a Christian. It's re relevant, but it's over at the fringes. It's the kind of knock-on effects of what else you already believe. And what I see again and again, and I hate this, um, is polling that will be, and I'm speaking about Catholic polling, because that's my tradition. You know, what percent of Catholics have ever cohabitated? Well, I guess they're all terrible. You know, or like this shows that Catholicism doesn't work or isn't true or they don't even believe it. I mean, if you poll, what percent of Catholics have ever lied or gossiped? You know, I have to say yes to both of those. And the way religion works is not that you do a bad thing and you're out forever or it's a definitive rejection. Um, 
religion and Catholicism particularly is about this cycle of falling short of what you ought to be, you know, reaching out, asking for grace, receiving forgiveness and going on. And we ask these very static questions. Have you ever, like, do you agree with this law that have nothing to do with religion as it is lived, which is not about a list of political positions to hold. It's not about a scorecard over your whole life, over what have you done and what haven't you done. It's about a perpetual quest for holiness. I definitely agree with the idea that private religion is not probed enough and sort of those deeper, thicker questions. uh, There's really not a way of getting at them. And I, I, I totally agree with that. But I don't think that religion should be a privatized exercise and exploration in the United States or anywhere in the world. Um, and obviously, this idea comes with a thicket of questions that are really, really difficult to adjudicate. So how, what kind of religion do you have in public life? Who gets to say what about their religion? How does that then affect other people who are of a different religion? How do you balance sort of minority peoples and peoples who are of a majoritarian religious culture? All of those are are very difficult questions that I'm uh, nowhere near the first person to raise. I am part of a long, long line of people who care about and are interested in these questions. But um, I do think that there's a public good that's lost when there's very little vocabulary, especially in the media, um, for discussing issues like morality and ethics and how you should exist as a person in the world and relate to human communities, and also how we deal with some of these existential struggles and questions, like the question of death, like the question of, uh, you know, sort of childbearing and family cycle events. All of these are traditionally religion's domain and for a long time religion was able to own them because of Christian monoculture basically that owned most of the West and now that we have more religious diversity they're they're much more difficult to engage but I don't mean I don't think that means that religion should be a totally privatized venture I think there is a place for religion in public life so as we wrap up I mean you know, I feel like we've spent the whole conversation talking about all the problems with religious reporting and religious polling but of course you know we're sitting here and you guys are religious <laughs> you guys are religious reporters and Leah you work for a stat site so let's highlight a little bit about uh what makes a good use of stats in this conversation and what kind of questions you like I think a lot of the time the good way to get into the religion and stats here is that a good article will include a balance of here's what I could measure and here's what I couldn't. And when you can't, that's when you reach a little more to an interview or to the actual text of what the church believes. You know, it's not inappropriate to bring in the catechism as a reporter to kind of explicate what's going on. Um, but often there's a reliance only on neutral sources. So the polling is neutral, but the statements of the church are not. Um, And so I think that's the good thing. You kind of blend, here's what I can measure, here's what I can't, here's as close as I can get to answering this question for you with the tools that I have. Uh, Just for me, the polling that I love seeing is the polling that starts my question wheels turning. Um, I think that polling is really useful insofar as it's a jumping off point, sort of as we've been discussing, for exploring questions in a deeper way. And one specific example of this, which is my favorite little nugget from all of these uh, Pew Religious Landscape Studies, which is basically one of the definitive studies about uh, sort of the layout of American religious belief. They have these huge sample sizes. They put 
put a lot of investment into it. They do it every seven years. Uh, and, and when the last one came out, there was all of this, you know, sort of running around, sky is falling attitude about the decline of American religion, the rise of the nuns uh, or people who don't identify with a particular religious institution. They had to have come up with a better name than nuns. So confusing. I know. <laughs> I, well, not least because, you know, in the religion world, there are at least two meanings of the verbal it's word too nun. Cute, Pew. I've been in weird conversations where that got confused for a minute <laughs> of nun and nun. Yes, right. but anyway, nun as in you don't have a religion. Right. As in you don't identify with a particular organized religion. But what I was going to say is within this group, a large portion, roughly half, not quite half, believe in God. Uh, and or they pray regularly as well. Uh, and so then the question there is, well, who are these people? Are they people who are in between churches? Are they people who have a spouse who's of a different faith so they no longer think they can identify with their childhood faith? Are they people who have uh, decided to have their own sort of path to spirituality that they're forging in their own individuated way? And I think this group of people who are sort of working religious questions outside of these traditional religious institutions are hugely fascinating and don't stick to any of the stereotypes about, you know, sort of the rise of atheism in the United States, because actually self-declared atheists, people who are just like, nope, God's not a thing for real, for sure. I am totally positive about it. Very, very, very small group. It's like two or three percent of people. Um, so to me, those are the really interesting questions is, is getting at those sort of interstitial gray zones of religion and getting to figure out how to start answering those questions. And that's a place where what the pollsters do is they ask an interesting large-scale question, identify this particularly perplexing group, and then unleash the ethnographers. Like, I think that's exactly (laughs) what the cycle should be. Emma Green of The Atlantic and Leah Labresco, our own Leah Labresco of 538. Thanks so much. You're both two of my favorite writers, and this is such a fascinating topic, so I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks, Jody. website. You can find links to Emma and Leah's pieces and read an excerpt 538.com slash podcasts. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. We post all of the 538 videos to Facebook, so check it out there, facebook.com slash 538. Sarah Patterson is our intern. Joel Warner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can email me at podcasts at 538.com. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. You can download the theme to this podcast, which he wrote on our website. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client. Give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Hello, What's the Point listeners? I'm Chadwick Matlin. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Neil Payne. And together we make up the crew of Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. Kate, how would you describe the show if you had to do it in like five seconds? It's freaking awesome. Okay, Neil? We take down hot takes. Look at that. That's sort of the title. Good point. (laughs) So if you want to hear us talk about the week in sports news and what people are talking about in an uninformed way and hear about the data and the stats and the analytics that take them down, subscribe in the iTunes store, search for Hot Takedown to find us. We'll talk to you then. Do it.